Do you live in a city? Chances are increasingly that you do. And if you do live in a city, I have some good news for you. Chances are you're smarter, you're happier, and you're richer because you live in a city. And the world is healthier and greener because most people these days either live in cities or seem to be moving to them. Now, that's not good news for everybody. Country mice might not be quite as happy about that as city mice, and we're going to talk about that this week with Ed Glazer, the celebrated author of the book Triumph of the City. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Glazer on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Not a fan of being surprised by hidden fees? Well, at TD Ameritrade, they charge just one straightforward price, give you everything you need to trade. No hidden fees, no surprises. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash pricing. Member SIPC. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. You found us. Yep. I don't know if this is the first time you've ever listened or the umpteenth, but this is Authors in August. It's my delight throughout this month to share with you during the time where a lot of us do summer beach reading some of my favorite books and the authors behind them. It all started this month with Warren Berger and his book, A More Beautiful Question. Then we heard from Chris McDougall last week, his book, Natural Born Heroes. And as I mentioned at the top, this week I have the pleasure of showing off Ed Glazer, Harvard economics professor and author of the wonderful book, Triumph of the City. So, what you're going to hear is my conversation with Ed. I hope you learn a lot, get smarter, happier, and richer. Talk to you on the backside. Fool on. Today's featured guest for our Authors in August series is leading urban economist Edward Glazer. Now, Ed serves as the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor of Economics at Harvard University, where he's taught since 1992. In addition to his esteemed tenure at Harvard, he's served as director of the Taubman Center for State and Local Government and director of the Rappaport Institute for Greater Boston. Now, a large part of Ed's published work focuses on the economics of cities, their health, growth, value, and the role cities can play as idea transmission centers. Ed is the author of one of the best books I've read in the past few years, Triumph of the City, which we'll talk about more in this episode. With the school year closely upon us, I know August can be a busy month for any professor, so thank you, Ed, for spending your time with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. So, most superb books give away their central conceit in the title. Yours is, in my mind, one of those superb books. Dr. Glazer, at the start of your book, you make a claim about what is humankind's greatest invention. So, what is our greatest invention? So, the, the, the claim that the city is our greatest invention is based on a, a view that human beings on their own are pretty weak creatures, and pretty much everything that we've done that's worthwhile comes from coordination, from combination, from these collaborative chains of creativity that have powered humanity's greatest hits since uh, Socrates and Plato bickered on an Athenian street corner. (laughs) Cities are machines for connecting us. They're machines that enable us to buy and sell to each other, to learn from one another, to collectively uh, consume things like museums, or that's, that's a real economist speak, right, to consume a museum. But of course, I mean, just, you know, to, to engage in, in collective enjoyment of these things that cities have in abundance. 
So you define cities at one point as, and I'm going to quote here, the absence of physical space between people and companies. They are proximity, density, closeness. End quote. What was the first great city? So it, I think the first city that it's easy for you know uh, an American to fall in love with is is Athens in the fifth century uh, before the Common Era. Now, of course, there are great political cities that go back further than that. Uh, there are you know what we typically call imperial cities, the centers of, of uh, the empires that existed going back. But Athens is the city that feels almost a little bit like New York in the years after World War II. It's a place that is achieving mercantile greatness, trading throughout the Mediterranean area. It's a place that is achieving uh, remarkable military success over the Persians and over neighboring city-states within Greece. And it's collecting brilliance, right? Collecting brilliance from throughout the Mediterranean world, uh, some of which is in philosophy, some of which are, are the people who created history, uh, meaning uh, Herodotus and Thucydides, some, some of which is, is in the performing arts, the playwrights in Athens during this period are remarkable. Mm-hmm. So it brings together this collection of talent, again, none of whom I think would have done the remarkable things that happened in 5th century Athens on their own. It's because they were part of this chain where each person was riffing on the person that came before that, you know, they were able to do this, this remarkable uh, set of achievements. And one of the things I love about Triumph of the City is that fundamentally it is the work not of an urban planner or I don't know, a restaurant critic or a mayor or even an, an historian per se, it's the work of an economist. So your insights are all based on observing things, Ed, like supply and demand, and you're gathering and looking at data, and you're seeing the money in things. So how did you first begin, I'm curious, begin to just think about focusing your professional work on cities? So there are a couple of ways of, of thinking about this, one of which is uh, my focus on cities came out of the growth theory that was developed at the University of Chicago in the 1980s when uh, researchers, above all, uh, I guess, Paul Romer, who received uh, a Nobel Prize this year mm-hmm. for his work on economic growth, but also the great Robert Lucas, who, who received his Nobel Prize much much earlier, um, mm. who came to the view that the way to understand growth was, it was through the accumulation of knowledge and much of the, the advantage of that knowledge spread to people who weren't the original creators. Much of it's hopped across people, across uh, across inventor, and that's how societies grew. And mm. this led Lucas to the observation that, well, this sounds a lot like what Jane Jacobs was writing about at this at that point in time. It would have been 20 years earlier. Now it's 50 years earlier uh, in the economy of cities when she was talking about how cities brought together people with different ideas who then combined these different forms of knowledge and then collectively created something great. So, for example, a modern version of this is the idea that of Bloomberg's innovation in, in Manhattan in the early 1980s, where Bloomberg, of course, is a tech billionaire in many ways. He's, he's involved in creating uh, technological tools that enable the use of information in financial services. But, of course, he doesn't come out of you know uh, the Stanford Industrial Park. He comes out of the Solomon Brothers uh, trading floor. <laughs> and it's precisely because he has the knowledge of what traders need on their desk, that he's able to start this technology company and deliver something that is of tremendous value to those traders. And so, that's a great example of an outsider coming in and 
uh, changing society and making a lot of money and adding a lot of value over the course of his life, and uh, a mayor as well. And I'm curious, is that kind of mixing and surprise source of where innovation comes, is that uniquely American in your mind? Or, as somebody who knows humanity over the centuries, is that just the story of cities? Oh, I think that's completely the story of cities. I don't think they're... I mean, America is, of course, you know, traditionally an open society. We have been great at, at historically welcoming outsiders in, into the U.S., uh, and that is a tremendous asset of America. But, you know, in London in the 19th century, there are plenty of, of outsiders coming in and shaking things up. Um, you know, if you think about the birth of the Industrial Revolution, right, it's this partnership between uh, Matthew Bolton and James Watt that happens in Birmingham. Well, Watt isn't from Birmingham. Watt's a Scot, and he's been working on his <laughs> separate condenser steam engines way up north. And it's a fortuitous set of, set of uh, circumstances that bring Watt down to Birmingham, where he's able to partner not just with Bolton, who gives him the you know, financial capital, who gives him the political uh, know-how to make this work, but also the tremendous, you know, metalworking skills that Birmingham has built up over centuries. Uh, men like John Iron Mad Wilkinson, who, who you know, was able to, were able to create the, the level of metal quality that was needed for these uh, uh, separate condenser steam engines to really function, which Watt couldn't get up in Scotland. It just wasn't the same metalworking skill. And so, Ed, I want to get back just to how you started this work. And I'm just curious, maybe you could share a story from your youth. I, I'm picturing you in Boston today. You've been at Harvard for a long time. And part of what I enjoyed about your book is just the human voice and occasionally mentioning your own impressions growing, uh, living as a parent, let's say, in Boston. So the human angle, I think, is compelling in Triumph of the City. But did you grow up in a city yourself? I did. I grew up in, in Manhattan. I grew up in, in the heart of a New York City that was going through uh, you know, terrifically tough time during the 1970s. And then in the 1980s, I, I, get, I got to watch something of this you know, urban resurgence. So it was hard as a kid growing up in New York not to be fascinated about what goes wrong and what goes right in, mm. in cities. Um, and you know, to, to witness those parents uh, who uh, of my friends who left the city to get public schools for their kids, uh, to see the political battles that raged during the election that put Ed Koch into the mayoralty, where mm. those big questions that were that were being asked, and and those questions are still being asked today in in New York about to what extent can New York be a progressive utopia, or do you know, market realities just collide with that and make that utterly impossible? Uh, during the 1970s, as New York you know, teetered on the brink of bankruptcy, it really seemed as if the bright dreams of the Lindsay era, where sort of anything seemed possible in a, you know, bright progressive New York, those those dreams seemed to have been dashed, and there was a, a belief by the 1970s that you really needed a more pragmatic uh, set of city leaders. Of course, the fact that the city was basically in, in you know, uh, under a, a bankruptcy control board also <laughs> helped. <laughs> And so I think I can conclude, I can infer from what you're saying, and of course I've read your book, that you would say that New York City today in 2019 is, by almost every measure, a better city than it was in 1979, 40 years ago. You know, in, in almost every way. So there are things that we should worry about in New York, so we should certainly worry about the housing affordability issue. Um, but, you know, the city is vastly safer. Uh, you know, I was, I was giving a talk at my high school last spring, and, you know, the, the, the number of deaths per day in New York was just totally different uh, when I was a kid and today. I was remembering back that, you know, uh, day, I think it was in, in February in 1983, when there was a triple homicide in the building right across the street from my school. Mm. Uh, this just 
you know, is, is a much rarer event in New York than it used to be. Of course, the embarrassing thing I remember about it as a kid is how exciting it was, right? <laughs> but, which is not the right answer. But uh, it was, um, you know, this was a, in many cases a really tragic time for New York. But it was a place in the, in the early 1980s or the late 1970s that was considerably more affordable. And I think many of us worry that New York in general and Manhattan in particular risks becoming a boutique town affordable only to the wealthy if it doesn't, you know, provide uh, enough space for new people to come in and to build a, a better future in the city. And uh, I'm assuming that what you just said about New York, you typically would say, generically so, is also generally true of most bigger cities, both in America and around the globe, probably better today than 40 years ago? Uh, most most cities are looking better, although there's a stark divide between those cities that are you know, well-endowed with college-educated people and those cities that have fewer college-educated people. Mm. So if you look at the U.S., you know, compare a city like Detroit, which, you know, has had green shoots, but is still deeply challenged with a city like Seattle, which is, uh, you know, which was also a troubled industrial city in the 1970s. I mean, mm. it's easy to forget now that two jokers put up a billboard on the highway leaving Seattle in 1971, asking the last person to leave the city to please turn out the lights. Because just as no one could imagine, you know, uh, uh, Detroit with a smaller General Motors, no one could imagine a Seattle with a smaller Boeing. And then Boeing had been cutting back on, on its jobs during this time period. Now, Seattle did come back gloriously, and those years are completely forgotten. But, of course, more than one-half of Seattle's adults have college degrees. Detroit's number is under 15%. Um, so it's a very different uh, education base. And cities, like countries, quite honestly, rise or fall on the bedrock of human capital. And it's a really important point, and one that I clearly took away from Triumph of the City, is the importance of a fine university in any city, and especially if that city hits hard economic times, as you just pointed out, there's a big difference between having a research magnet like, let's say, Carnegie Mellon versus not having Carnegie Mellon in your city. Absolutely. Uh, the work of Enrico Moretti at, at Berkeley shows quite clearly that having a land-grant college in your location prior to 1940 is a big predictor of success over hmm. the last 30 years in, in wages, in employment growth. Um, and, uh, you know, our, our land-grant college in Greater Boston, of course, is MIT. Uh, so, and, and it's, you know, sad but true that MIT's contribution to the local economy in the 70s and 80s was almost surely significantly greater than that of, of Harvard. So, you know, these institutions like Carnegie Mellon, like MIT, like Stanford, just have proven to be enormously powerful in a, in a global economy that really relies upon new ideas and innovation. My conversation with Ed Glazer continues, but first, this episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. When it comes to investing, each of us does it our own unique way. Some of us want to go it alone. Others might prefer some guidance. Regardless of your style, TD Ameritrade is always creating new solutions to help you. From their award-winning technology to personalized guidance, they have everything you need to invest on your Terms. Visit tdameritrade.com slash YTDA to learn more and get started today. Member SIPC, tdameritrade.com slash WHYTDA. 
just as you have a very clear title to your book, and we're going to talk about the subtitle a little later, but each of the chapters in your book has a fun, I would say it's a beautiful question that you then go on to answer in each of the chapters. So questions like, why do cities decline? And is there anything greener than blacktop? But I have to say, as a fool, and that's with a capital F, I love insights that go against the conventional wisdom. So these kinds of insights, in my mind, add or what create the real value out there, like finding a company with a crazy valuation like Amazon or doing something silly like Twitter, and then as a stock, buying it and maybe making a whole lot more money, because at these early stages, the world just didn't believe. So chapter three has an interesting title. It's, What's Good About Slums? So Ed Glazer, what's good about slums? So, one of the points that I try to make in, in this book is that cities should never apologize uh, for their poverty. Cities or for their inequality. Cities attract rich people because cities are fun places to be rich, to spend a lot of money, but they also attract poor people. They attract poor people with, the, most importantly, the promise of economic opportunity. They attract poor people with typically better social services. They attract poor people with the ability to get around without an abundance of cars. Uh, you know, my own work with Matthew Kahn on the location of poverty within cities showed that when new subway stops were built, poverty rates went up near those subway stops. That's not because the subway stops were impoverishing local people. It's because they were attracting uh, poor people mm. with the ability to, to get around. So uh, slums, in some sense, are a tangible sign that cities are attracting poor people with their their variety of assets. Now, there's a corollary of that, which is, you know, while cities should never apologize for their inequality, they should worry a lot about upward mobility. So, successful cities are places that are, you know, up escalators where people can come to a slum and then get out of the slum. And one of the things that the Chetty, Hendren, Friedman data uh, using upward mobility has, has found, looking at kids who were born in the late 70s, early 80s, and looking at them today, hmm. is that some of our cities are not doing a great job of that. That, in fact, um, kids growing up in cities, my, myself, I guess, uh, uh, notwithstanding, um, typically have had somewhat worse economic outcomes. And you really see this starkly just at the boundary of the central city school district, that you know, upward mobility outside of the central city school district seems to be significantly higher than upward mobility within the central city school district. So I think you know, we should both you know, think about the hope that cities involve and the hope that are even there in, in slums, um, but also recognize that America's cities and America's central city school districts still have work to do to make sure that there are places of opportunity as well as uh, prosperity. When we think about slums in the developing world, I think the case is even... Um, is even starker, right? So it's easy to go to a slum in a developing world city and just feel just so saddened by uh, the poverty that's there. And, and in one sense, that emotion is valid. But it's really important that we compare those people not with our own privileged lives, but with the lives that they left behind in, in rural poverty. Mm. And there really isn't a future in uh, most rural poverty. And cities are agents for change. Uh, there are, they are pathways out of poverty into prosperity for whole nations. And we've seen this certainly in East Asia, where urbanization was a critical part of the, the wealth uh, acquisition process. We've seen this, of course, in our own uh, past and in the West, where you know, urbanization was critical to the movement from a, you know, in, in agricultural past, where you know, poverty had pretty much stayed for millennia, to the, post, you know, the, the post-urban world, in which we are just enormously uh, wealthier than we were in the past. 
And indeed, you cite um, that workers in cities are earning typically 30% more on average than workers who aren't in metropolitan areas. People in cities live longer. Uh, they have more fun. Uh, are there any downsides? Well, the, the high housing costs, for sure. And the, I just mentioned the fact about, about kids in cities not, uh, not doing as well as one would hope as well. Mm-hmm. So there's never a free lunch. And mm-hmm. I think it's important to stress that you know, the, the title of the book, notwithstanding, I'm an economist, not a lifestyle consultant, right? <laughs> I, th- I think you know, there are plenty of people who don't want to live in cities. And you know, that's fantastic. And it's great that you know, America gives people lots of different places in which they can live, lots of different uh, types of, of locale. And it's great when cities are archipelagos of neighborhoods, places where you can live in high-rises or live in single-family detached houses or live in, in detached row houses. All of these options are right for different kinds of people. And so you know, everything involves a, a trade-off. And, and unfortunately today, the high cost of city living is one of the big things that people face about moving into an urban area. And in your book, you take a shot at this old saw. I like it when people take shots at old saws. This one goes, think globally, act Locally, I wonder if you could take a shot at that again on this podcast. Sure, <laughs> I'm happy to. <laughs> so um, the the key the key point here is that what looks good from a local perspective environmentally may be exactly the wrong thing from a global environmental perspective. Hmm. So let's say you were uh, you know an environmentalist who was worried a lot about carbon emissions. Um, well then there are some places and some ways of living in the U.S. that are associated with far lower carbon emissions than other areas. And let me give you two types of things which are associated with lower carbon emissions. Within metropolitan areas, typically living close to the city center involves much less carbon from both the household uh, and from driving around. Uh, people either take public transportation or more often in the U.S. they're driving shorter distances. Mm-hmm. The households are typically smaller, even holding income and family size constant, again, because housing is more expensive. Across metropolitan areas, the big determinant of carbon emissions is climate. Places that have mild winters and mild summers just have far fewer carbon emissions than places that have really hot uh, summers or really cold winters. Uh, now, the combination of those two facts mean that if you're really serious about you know, a, a reducing carbon emissions, you should be fighting like crazy for every high-rise development in the San Francisco Bay or in central Los Angeles, because these are the areas where the climate is benign. You've got public transportation access with, uh, uh, in both of these areas, and, or at least shorter commutes. And so building up these sort of California coastal cities is just a phenomenally good thing from a perspective of minimizing carbon emissions. And yet, too often, and this has changed in the California environmental movement, but historically, uh, they were opposed to development. They were opposed to development pretty much everywhere, but certainly development where they lived. Mm. And, you know, California saw a sea change in its building environment from the 60s to the, to the 80s as particularly environmentally based rules. Supreme Court, not the, not the, not the U.S. Supreme Court, but the, the California State Supreme Court, uh, the Friends of Mammoth case, required an, an environmental impact review for all major developments. Um, and all of these things made it much more difficult to build. Now, that may cause a few Californians to look green, but it's not really green, because when you turn off the housing spigot in coastal California, you turn it on in Houston, you turn it on in Nevada, you turn it on in places that are fundamentally less friendly to low carbon emissions. And so by acting locally, you have the effect of making the global situation worse, not better. Mm. And it was indeed ironic to me to read in your book and to learn that if you're really thinking about 
climate change and about energy globally, you should be favoring cities, especially cities that build up, as opposed to the country or even suburbia, if you're doing the math on emissions. That's certainly what we what we found. So this comes from work of mine with UC, with formerly USC environmental economist Matthew Kahn. He's now moved to Johns Hopkins, uh-huh. um, where we measured carbon emissions in different parts of, of the U.S. and we really found a, a stark difference associated with both these more temperate metropolitan areas and also living living closer to the city center. Mm. And Washington D.C. is an interesting case. It is our home city. The Motley Fool is in the Washington D.C. area, but the district has generally made a decision not to build up. And kind of like Paris, a city you talk about in Triumph of the City as well, it's sort of a. It was crafted a century or so ago. It's kind of being preserved. Nothing builds up. It makes for a beautiful city, and massive sprawl with lots of traffic. So one of the things I took from your book is if the city fathers in Washington D.C. could make the decision to build up, we would be a happier and more prosperous city. Do you agree? I think, you know, it's not that I believe that everyone should live in a high-rise. It's not that I believe that everyone should build a high-rise. But uh, I think we have a lot to gain by allowing those people who want to build up, who want to accommodate market demand for high-rise living, I think we have a lot to gain by allowing more of them to build up. Mm, And that's certainly true in Washington, D.C. as well. Okay, yeah, the power of urban density. Uh, Dr. Glazer, give me an underrated American city, and then give me an overrated American city. (laughs) Well, underrated is underrated is easy overrated you know this is like I, you know, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well go with the easy first uh, at least un- underrated sure you know there's a, there's a lot to love about pittsburgh for example as as we've already mentioned carnegie mellon i mean this is a city with great bones a great uh, education uh, uh, infrastructure a lot of uh, natural beauty associated with it it's a city which you know experienced a downturn earlier than the other Rumsfeld cities. So even in the 1950s, hmm. uh, Pittsburgh felt as if it was an industrial dinosaur. And consequently, it began the recovery period a little bit earlier. Part of that recovery period, as my, my co-author Matt Kahn pointed out, was the fact that as the industry shrank, the air quality got better, and, and Pittsburgh City of Smog became replaced by a city that's really quite attractive to be in. Um, I would say there's, there are lots of, of these former industrial cities that are you know, uh, underrated in terms of having both great bones, a lot of innovative people who are still around, and and a lot of fun. Another set of underrated cities are the smart Sunbelt cities. So, you know, Bostonians uh, conveniently overlook the fact that Atlanta is about as well-educated as Boston is. And there are these cities, Atlanta, Austin, uh, Charlotte, um, Mm -hmm. where, you know, skills are high, and unlike, say, for example, some of the you know East Coast or West Coast cities, they also have a much more pro-business, pro-entrepreneurship environment, and so they sort of combine this this being having lots of skills with actually liking it when people start new businesses, liking it when people shake things up, and that combination is a very powerful one. Now, they also most of them make it relatively easy to build, and so they've preserved affordability by allowing private developers to create plenty of, of homes in ways that these these older uh, coastal cities uh, have not. Um, in terms of overrated cities, uh, you know, uh, all right, I will, I will take, uh, I'll take, take just, just one uh, pot shot on this, which is, um, 
it, it, it often when you sort of think about the you know imperial cities, cities that often can look grand because they've got a government that's built it up. You know, Astana would be an extreme example in the 21st century. Uh, but I would even say, you know, while Beijing is full of interesting, brilliant people, Beijing also fits into this category. And there are parts of Washington which do too. These sort of imperial cities may look good to the eye, but they often don't function extremely well, right? Mm. They often have traffic that is, that is, you know, far too heavy because they've built to impress rather than to allow people to to get around. And um, my taste, at least, always go towards, you know, the mercantile cities that are built to be functional places for people to trade with one another over the cities that are built to enable the state to impress you with its grandeur. Mm. Let's now talk a little bit about affordable housing. You've referenced it a few times. It's very much in the minds, I'm sure, of a lot of our listeners. And it's kind of one of those blooming national stories and questions about, it seems like the ones that succeed the most, San Francisco, um, Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., there are others. These are cities that are enjoying outstanding growth in housing prices and overall prosperity, and they seem to be mushrooming, and cities, these cities are triumphing, Ed, as you've written. But I'm of two minds about this, because while I think I want my housing prices to go up because I'm an owner, um, it also is increasingly perceived as a problem that we can't get a working-class, important group of people to live near enough to work in our cities. I think it's absolutely something that we should worry about. I think we should worry about it from the perspective of local affordability. I think we should worry about it from a national perspective as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, American history has been full of epics in which an area soared in terms of its productivity. Think about the transportation innovations of the 19th century that made it possible to inhabit the Ohio River Valley or move further west to get to the rich soil of, of Illinois and Iowa. Um, you think about the, the changes of urbanization in the late 19th century that made cities much more productive and, and induced millions of people to come to urban areas. During all of these time periods in the past, America made it really easy to build, right? This move west coincided with the development of balloon frame ha housing. And no one said, boy, you can't build your house here on the frontier because we've got, you know, 40 acre minimum lot sizes. Mm -hmm. um, but increasingly, in the most productive parts of America, we also have the most draconian land use uh, regulations. Silicon Valley, of course, being ground zero for this. And uh, we certainly can understand where they come from, both because owners don't want to see the value of their, their asset go down, but also because people dislike the nuisance of new construction. It's totally understandable. People are not villains for thinking that they'd rather see their city stay the way that it is. But the cumulative effect of all of that opposition to change, all of that opposition to new growth, is that cities become frozen. And instead of an America that moves, to its most productive places. It's an America that moves to places that make it easy to build. And on one level, it's great that Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, Phoenix really enabled the builders to, to keep housing affordable, to mm -hmm. actually allow middle-income Americans to come. But on the other level, you know, wouldn't it be great if it was also easy to move into greater San Francisco because they also uh, enabled lots of builders? Wouldn't it be great if New York City built 100,000 units a year as it did during a few years in the early 1920s and kept the city affordable to ordinary New Yorkers? Um, briefly, you were reminding me that as America expanded west, there was a really important moment. I think it was somewhere in the middle of the 19th century, the Homestead Act, which basically said, if you've been occupying this land, let's say an acre for a while, you own it. 
And I'm curious if you've encountered the work and what you think of it of, of another uh, contemporary economist, Hernando de Soto, who wrote a book I enjoyed about 10 years ago called The Mystery of Capital, where he basically says the key here is property rights. And so, what the U.S. did with the Homestead Act, a lot of the developing countries worldwide, if they really want to develop, they will extend property rights to people who are squatting in different places in and around cities. I, I totally agree with DeSoto. Um, it, it it's complex, and, and partially it's complex because what we call property rights about, about land or housing is really a bundle of rights. It's the right to have your home without uh, a private entity or a public entity take it from you. It's the right to rent out that property. It's the right to develop that property. It's the right to mortgage that property. It's the right to sell that property. And when you think about what we have in many developing world cities, often the people there actually have some version of those rights. So typically most of the people who are uh, informal uh, occupants of these areas uh, are relatively safe from at least private expropriation. No one's going to take their home most of the mm-hmm. time. But they certainly can't develop it to any level that they want. They certainly can't sell it easily. Uh, they certainly, and that's of course Soto's point, certainly can't mortgage it. They certainly can't right. use it as the basis for for uh, starting uh, a new company. And that's, that really is important. And uh, just to make one other point that's really critical with this, uh, part of well-developed property rights is that ownership isn't just about you know empowering the owner. It's also about imposing at least some obligations on the owner, most obviously in the U.S. property taxes. But for example, um, I was raised on a story of engineering triumphalism in 19th century New York, which is New York in the 1820s and 1830s was filthy, and then the good engineers built the Croton Aqueduct, and then the clean water flowed in, and people stopped dying. And part of that story is true. But when you look at the death data, New York actually didn't see its death rate start dropping until 25 years after the Croton Aqueduct was built. There were a whole series of cholera epidemics uh, that that came after the Croton Aqueduct. And the reason for this is that poor people didn't connect to the aqueduct. Connecting was expensive, uh, and they continued to use their shallow wells that were close to latrines, and they continued to, to die of cholera. Mm. Um, so it didn't happen until after the, the Metropolitan um, Board of Health was formed in, in 1866 um, that you actually started seeing wholesale, large-scale connections of poor people. And the reason for this is that the Metropolitan Board of Health actually required it. They imposed an obligation on tenement owners that you actually needed to connect. Now, not all of that was followed, but you really had to have this rule that said, look, you're not allowed to maintain these conditions of filth that then breed epidemics. Flash forward to the developing world today, we continue to have a major last mile problem. Mm. Governments or, or donors build water mains, but they don't build for the final connection. The poor people who are, you know, in Zambia, where I work on, on water, cost $1,000 for these households to connect to the water system, and per capita GDP is under $2,000 a year, and so they decide to not connect. Mm. Well, you know, I get that, but it's also really critical for the health of the city that, that you move towards a, a water system, and it's awfully hard to impose the regulations you've got to connect if you don't know who owns the land. And so having a well-functioning property rights system is really critical to sort of ordering a city and to making sure people actually follow the rules, particularly when those rules relate to basics of public health. And just one last thing then on affordable housing, Ed. Based on your surveys, either of our country or worldwide, and what you're looking at, where it is working, what is a good exemplar city that is making housing affordable, that's doing it right, that the rest of us can learn from? 
I think there's a lot to like about Chicago traditionally on this. Chicago allowed, you know, let the cranes go freely in on Lake Michigan and consequently remain a much more affordable city than New York did. Um, but if you really want to see the epicenter of American affordability, of course, it's Texas, you know, where Houston had almost, you know, no significant rules for preventing building. And uh, if you just do the math of what it's like to be a, a middle-income American living in Houston versus New York City, it's just miles apart. And the bulk of that difference is because you can buy a decent house in a decent neighborhood in Houston for a fraction of what it would cost in New York. All right. And now, from a completely different direction, have to ask you about this. So, uh, back in 2011, when your book was first published, Skype, and then I'd say today maybe Zoom, are companies that are backing let's say, a different vision of the future, that, that you and I wouldn't go to work downtown somewhere, but rather get our work done via video conferencing from our den. So, Zoom, for example, today trades at a huge valuation premium, which implies to me that this is where the world thinks it's headed. Do you agree? And what are the implications for the city? So, I don't know about Zoom's valuation. I've got no opinion on that whatsoever. <laughs> and I don't think that video conferencing is going away. But I just don't think it's going to make face-to-face contact in any sense obsolete. When I started working on these topics 30 years ago, there was a whole you know, group of techno-triumphalists who insisted that you know, electronic communication would make face-to-face connection completely irrelevant and consequently cities completely irrelevant as well. Hmm. I thought that was wrong then. I think that that's wrong now. And one way to think about this is what technological change and globalization have done is they've radically increased the returns to being smart. And we are a social species that gets smart by being around other smart people. I mean, this is how universities function. This is how successful companies function. Um, you know, you don't see Google saying, you know, oh boy, just dial it in. They, you know, build larger <laughs> Uh, buildings for connecting their workers, because that's how creativity works. We get smart by being around other smart people. And the more complicated the world becomes, the more complex ideas become, the easier it is for those ideas to get lost in translation. Anyone who's ever taught knows the hard part about teaching is not knowing your subject material. It's knowing whether or not anything you're saying is getting through. And we have these fantastic cues for communicating comprehension or confusion that are lost when we're not in the same room with one another. So I'm not in any sense, betting against video conferencing. But I am certainly not a believer that face-to-face connection is going to go away. And, you know, I mean, I think I have a line in the book, which is that connecting in cyberspace will never compare with sharing a meal or a kiss or a smile, and I stand by that, too. Mm. Your book was first published in 2011. It reads fresh and fun like it was written yesterday, but... Ed, 2011 is now eight years ago. Um, What has changed? Most prominently, what would you love to say in a new chapter for 2019? Oh, I think much of my own work over the past three or four years has been on cities in the developing world. And so I've been trying to understand a whole series of things about about what are different about those challenges. Um, I think I would be more focused on the, the opportunity gap in cities. I think that's an area in which I'm just trying to understand more fully about how cities can do a better job of making sure the kids that grew up in those cities uh, do better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think maybe the most important thing for me has been my increased focus on 
the rise of prime-age male joblessness as a major American uh, phenomenon. So when I was born in 1967, about 5% of prime-age men were jobless. For most of the past decade, more than 15% of prime-age men wow. uh, have been jobless. That's not spatially neutral. Um, there's a swath of America that I typically refer to as the Eastern Heartland that begins down in Mississippi and Louisiana, runs up through Appalachia, and ends in, in Rust Belt cities, where often one in four prime-age men are jobless. And when you think about the future of work, which is such an important question for all of us, it's really easy to think about where the jobs will be in cities. They'll be where they are now, which is in service sectors, and cities will be places that enable people to provide services for each other, to bring a smile to some of their... their uh, providing a coffee for or to do something, some new service that no one's dreamed about. Mm. The hard problem is what's going to happen in areas away from uh, our urban centers. It's hard to imagine how the service economy will really thrive there. And I think grappling about how the future of work then interacts with urban density feels to me like a a central question for the 21st century. Mm. Ed Glazer, thank you very much for your time, this appearance on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, again, thank you to Dr. Glazer for joining us this week. You know, the subtitle of his book has some echoes with, I'm going to say, capital F foolishness. Let me give you the subtitle of his book, Triumph of the City, How Our Greatest Invention Makes Us Richer, Smarter, Greener, Healthier, and Happier. Now, I think A lot of my longtime listeners will know that the purpose of The Motley Fool, as we have stated it, is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. Smarter, happier, and richer. And in Ed's subtitle, it's how cities make us richer, smarter, happier. He also throws in greener and healthier. So, maybe we should just rename our company The City Fool and have an even bigger vision where we're also making you healthy and also greener. All right. Well, next week, we've got Joseph Grenny, one of the co-authors of the seminal work, Crucial Conversations. You might have read it. If you haven't, I highly suggest you pick up the book. It's one of those books where I wish I'd read this when I was my children's age. I would have been such a smarter, happier, and richer person today for the ability to have crucial conversations and to do them well over the course of my life. So, Joseph Grenny, Crucial Conversations, next week on Rule Breaker Investing. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.